This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, editorial director, co-founder of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Stephen Powell's brewmaster for Boulevard Brewing in Kansas City. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Stephen's been our, our dark horse favorite brewer for a long time after showing up a few years ago to our, uh, our brewer's retreat at Devil's Thumb Ranch in Colorado. And, uh, you know, we didn't know what to expect. And uh, that first that first time brewing, he uh, spent three hours boiling, and his team of brewers were the last ones finished for dinner. But when we tasted the beer, we understood. Uh, you have a wry sense of humor, and it's been so fun to share those experiences with you. So thank you for joining me on the podcast today, that's, Stephen. That's funny. I, I wasn't sure you were going to bring this up, but, yeah, it's a, it, that was a great experience. Yeah. <laughs> I remember talking to you about that because here we were brewing on, uh, you know, small 15-gallon Ruby Street systems, and, uh, and you let us know that you had never actually brewed on a system that size before, that you came out of uh, – of university and mm-hmm. went you know, straight into larger scale production breweries. And so it was a new experience for you. I homebrewed once. Uh, so I never told you that, but I made a little homebrew system. <laughs> it sounded I, way better if you said I, you never I, done I know, it but I was like, yeah. So I made something at home. I grew up on a farm. And so I made something. It was kind of ridiculous what I did, you know. And uh, the beer came out really, really well. I was very surprised, and all my neighbors came over. You know, I still lo- was living at home in, on the farm, and all the neighbors came over. They just drank the beer in a couple of days. Uh, and then after that, it went really, really downhill really quick. I became a specialist in sour beers really quick. <laughs> <laughs> so now you know, you know. So, but that wasn't even, I mean, it was not even close to what the Ruby Street system is. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's sure. It's like a Rolls Royce for homebrewers. <laughs> it's really, really fun. But I had no idea how to brew, to be honest. When I walked up there, I'm like, yeah, I have to brew on this? And nobody else, you know, I mean, any of these guys ever brewed on this? It was, it was very nice. It was cool. Pretty it was cool. fun watching you all. And, uh, you know, with Matt Reynoldson and John Mallett and, and others, um, you know, that initial fear and trepidation about how are we going to do it on these small systems, it didn't take long for that to turn into uh, a kind of friendly, competitive uh, uh, nature there. And, and it seemed like all of a sudden the sleeves were up and the race was on to see who could knock out uh, the fastest and, uh, and finish. Yeah. Um, and, and you lost that one pretty, pretty handily. Yeah, but you know, I I always say the proof is in the pudding, right? Sure, so, sure. And, and and yeah, I I know I mashed for a really long time because I wanted to make a saison, make it really really dry. Right. And uh, oh, man, if I can compete with John Mallet and Matt Brendelson, I'll I'll do it any day. <laughs> They're two of my heroes in the brewing industry. They're absolutely fun guys. Uh, Andy as well, of course. And yeah. uh, you know they're they're my peers, and you know they're fantastic people. I think I have to say this. I think John Mallet does not get enough credit in the brewing industry. That guy has done so much for the brewing industry, and yeah, I think he's fantastic. I can't uh, agree with you anymore. Um, and you're right; the proof is in the pudding. We're actually drinking that saison, uh, Brett saison that you brewed right now, uh, as we're talking. And uh, that was a 2015 brew. So yeah. this beer has a. It's 2018 now. We've got a. It's got a few years on it, and. Uh, it's drinking beautifully. It is. It is. And I was, uh, when you poured these out of the fridge, my heart went beating a little bit faster. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> you're going to bring this up. But, yeah, after tasting it, it's, just, it's a beautiful beer still. And I was trying to find any kind of oxidation, and I couldn't find any. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's the beauty yeah. of Britannomyces in the, in the bottle conditioning there. Absolutely, yeah. The antioxidant power of Britannomyces cannot be underestimated. For sure, for sure. Well, we can talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but I want to start out by uh, talking, or staying on that subject of Saison or farmhouse sale and talking a little bit about Tank 7. Uh, I've got homebrewer friends who have who routinely tell me they think that Tank 7 is, is one of the best uh, beers made in America. Wow. That uh, you know, it has captured that spirit. It was one of the, the first real large-scale commercial Saison farmhouse sales uh, marketed. Mm-hmm. In the United States, um, but that had to be a, a, a kind of a leap for Boulevard to jump into making a beer like that and, and uh, turning it into something 
that's nationally distributed uh, for, for a style that was pretty niche before that. How did you make a case for that? And how to how is that beer? Um, you know, tell me about the growth of that beer over the years. Yeah, you know, I, I think I can talk about that for about an hour, but I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> tell me so, all your secrets. Yeah, um, I mean, really, from the from the get go, I started in, in in Kansas City at Boulevard in '99, and it, all I could do is just catch up with making enough wheat beer. And we had this 35 barrel brew house, and now and then we had a tank open. Then I could, so unfiltered wheat, the kind of yeah. flagship for yeah. for Boulevard. Exactly, it was grown so fast, it, and it was just like, you know taking a, a little bit of breeding now and then just to keep catching up and it was it was it was a fantastic time um so now and then there was a tank that we could keep open and then we would do you know more belgian inspired beers because I'm, I'm from belgium so the first beer that we made was a triple and people just loved it uh but we never sold it because we just couldn't make it there was no way that we could commercialize it right and then the next one was a saison and then um then our, our brewers would they were like, wow, this is just amazing. How, why can't we just commercialize it? But we just did not have the capacity. Yeah. It was only in 2006 when we put the new brew house in that we finally had enough room. And I remember when we were designing the, the, the new brew house, we were going to make weed beer and PLL. And, you know, right. it was not, that brew house not designed to make Tank 7 and any of these beers. Well, little did we know that Tank 7, as soon as it hit the market, it just kept growing and growing and growing. Um, but the funny story is that we made a beer called Saison. Uh, it was 6.4 ABV. It was one of the part of the smokestack series, and we could not give that beer away. <laughs> it, it was the funniest thing. It was. It, it was. It's not the same as Tank Seven. It was. Yeah. You know, instead of 8.5 ABV, 6.4. It wasn't dry hopped. It was. You know, there wasn't kind of a cross with. Uh, you know, there was no U.S. influence in it. it we didn't use Amarillo hops in those days. It was just really pure, typical saison. Right. And uh, we couldn't give it away. And then we made uh, Saison Bread after a couple of years because I wanted to make something more farmhousey, more earthy. Right. Um, so no better way of doing that than make, you know, putting a bread strain on it and you know, create this whole new level of flavors that you can get with a, with a Sickermyces. And uh, so we did that. And so that beer was sitting in tank number seven. I mean, you, you kind of feel where the story goes here, right? <laughs> so this tank, had, the beer was sitting in tank seven, and uh, we were growing our Brettanomyces. Little did we know 10 years ago how slow Brettanomyces grows and, you know, how finicky it is. Right. So that beer was sitting in the tank forever, and uh, we were just drinking it. We loved it. It was eight and a half ABV. It was dry hopped. It was so different than our saison that we made. And uh, the beer just sat there, and we kept drinking it. And, you know, our marketing team was like, what? Everybody's drinking it. What's about with this beer? And I'm like, well, I think we should take Saison out and make this beer. Um, and uh, I think we took it to some festivals and called it Tank 7. Our marketing team wanted to give it a different name, but that didn't fly very well. I mean, quickly, it was just Tank 7, and it was born. And uh, So basically, they're sister breers. And nobody, I, think, I don't think a lot of people know that Saison Brett is actually older than Tank 7. Hmm. Um, and they're sister beers, really. And the big difference is just the Brettanomyces in the bottle conditioning. There's, so that's it. They're basically the same beer then. Yeah, we make it a little different now. We okay. make sure that if we make the tank seven for saison bread, we make sure it's dry enough. Okay. Uh, so we will we'll mash it even longer. I mean, mm. if I, I was there for a long time. Remember, I, I probably would have been there. I would still be there now. You know, it's a yeah. It's just a matter of making sure that it's you know, it's really really dry enough. Yeah. You know, you get to you know one and a half Play-Doh maximum. Um, final gravity, and yeah. then uh, we don't dry hop it as much as Tank Seven. Okay, uh, just because you know it, it, the bread takes over, and you know uh, over time, and it's just a better beer without not that much dry hop. Yeah, tell I me think. a little bit about building that balance in Tank Seven. Now you've you're, you've designed it as a, like you said, a, a beer in the eight percent range, so it's mm -hmm. definitely got a little more an a little more alcohol to it, a little you know uh, potentially a little bit more uh, residual body to it. Um, and then, as you say, uh, you've added an American hop component to so that it's not a purely traditional beer, but you've made right. it your own. Talk to me a little bit about some of those design concerns as you were envisioning this beer, yeah. and uh, you know how you you balance some of those different things uh, elements with each other. So I think if you talk about saison, <clears throat> ten years ago when when we made that the first time, um, I was tasting some saisons and I was getting pretty much a little upset to be honest mm. because they were overspiced. They were sweet, 
and hardly any really had enough carbonation. Yeah. And I mean, to me, a saison is something that's really crisp, nice carbonation, nice foamy head, you know, dry, drinkable, even though it's eight and a half, which is kind of way out of its range. But I think, I think it was the right beer at the right time when we put it out. And I wanted to go to eight and a half because, I mean, really what I wanted to make is something like a duvel but kind of more rustic mm. you know like a duvel is so polished and it's such a nice elegant beer and it's it's all about elegance and what i wanted to make is a beer that's like it drinks very elegantly but it's got edges like a really like an edgy beer so dry hopped you know maybe a little more phenolic um you know but nice carbonated and nice drinkable that really was my goal um and that's you know that's how we came up with it and we don't use a saison yeast for that beer no um, what do you what do you use for it we use a, you know, I, I couldn't tell you because it was a yeast that was in my pocket when I came to the U.S. Uh, it's, uh, and I, I, I'm not holding any secrets here. Trust me. It's a, I mean, it's just an Abbey tale. Abbey, those Belgians, they have a, you know, a, a reputation for being uh, playing uh, well, cl- cling it close yeah. to the vest. I, I don't know. I spent whole afternoon with Peter here, so maybe that's why. <laughs> uh, no, it's you know I don't think. I, and nowadays, when I when I drink a saison that's made with you know the typical saison strains, right. you know Dupont strain or whatever you have, I, I think they're now I really enjoy them more than I did hmm. in those days because okay. I think everybody's kind of figured out how to work with these strains. You know, they're a little finicky. You have to yeah. let them go, let them really ferment at a higher temperature and all that. But to me, it's that balance, you know, how to find that balance between the ester flavor and the phenols. And then, you know, because it's a little American influenced, you know, how do you get that hop layer in there too? And I think at that time, uh, Amarillo was a, was a great hop because it was a little earthy. It wasn't right. really that grapefruity kind of came later on. Uh, but it's, you know, it kind of, I think it works on it. Now, you say now later can, on, are you saying that Amarillo has changed over that time? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, is that a secret? <laughs> no, it has changed. It yeah. has changed dramatically, uh, hmm. and it's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a funny hop. Yeah, you know, you get it, you get it as it is, and yeah, it it was great. I, I spent spent some time with the, you know the key grower with that, and it was eye opening to me. You know how how they look at Amarillo. It's interesting. In know? what way? Um, I think because. They, uh, they grew so much, Amarillo grew so much, and they kept it all. I mean, instead of you know, having the rootstock go to a bunch of brewers, they right. kind of really kept close eyes on it, so they really grown a lot in their own property. And, and the, the picking window, I mean, you only have that much picking window, yeah. and they went really out of that picking window. So mm. they have, you know, they lay, basically laid it out for us. Okay, here's Amarillo, and I'm, I'm not gonna be judgmental here but i mean they laid it out so okay here's the really early picking here's the mid picking here's the late picking and and this is all amarillo and it i mean the differences were just it wasn't even the same hop yeah so if you if you use amarillo and i mean you don't know what window picking window you get it from it is it basically is night and day difference so yeah interesting yeah it's, it's interesting how how a grower, you yeah. know, has such a big impact on, uh, on a lot of beers, really. For sure, yeah. and that is one reason that the growers tend to grow multi- different crops so that the, as they come uh, ready to harvest within specific windows, you can, you can hit your cascades first and then you can move into your centennials. And, mm-hmm. you, know, they, uh, you know, and these are happening over the course of a couple of days at, you know, where you know, it hits its window and you got to pick it. And then, you know, and you're, if you leave it on the... The buying longer than that, then you can get some interesting characters out Ab- of that. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's fun. I don't think a lot of people really un- really recognize that. But yeah. you're making, you know, you have the kilns, and the kilns are really always the bottleneck most yeah. of the time, right? Or the picking might be the bottleneck, but most of the time it's the kilns. And these kilns have to be once once you know harvesting starts. Yeah. Until the last variety. I mean, that's just go go go. Right. And you know they try to really come up with newer varieties that are. And we're basically just stretching those windows because mm. um, it's huge investment. I mean, if you think about it, how much how much capital goes in in, in these new kilns for for hop hop growers? I mean, it's that's a lot a lot of money. So you know, if if they come up with a variety that's later or earlier, I mean, that's just big win for the for the growers. And right. I think I mean, farmers are smart people. Yeah. Yeah. Very smart people. And you're right. The way that they're kilned, because they're football field-sized, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, buildings with 
you know, a couple feet of, of hops that they've run hot air through um, and building those buildings and processing. I mean, you know, that's it's very capital intensive Yeah, you yeah. Know, for a hops farm to, to you know, expand that. And so you're right. I think staggering the hops that they grow becomes a more capital efficient use of their uh, of their space and their equipment. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I, we're part of the um, hop quality group, which is, uh, I think, a, a good organization that's been helping in a lot of brewers right um and we've been pushing you know to get the the height of the kiln lower yeah we've done quite a bit of tests and all that and uh but yeah you always come back to the to the grower he's like well you know what i have that much done that needs to go through it and right. how am i going to do that if you ask me to lower my bed that much but i mean it's it's kind of proven that you know the at the bottom where the most heat is yeah versus the top i mean hops dry different sure and uh and, and keeping it lower definitely helps, but we still, you know, we're we're at the grace of the growers, and we can only advise them and tell them, okay, we just we, that's how that's what we want. That's what we right. were looking for. We want very consistent hops. We want them dried perfectly, you know, homogeneously, and all that. But you know, it's farming and it's uh, investment, and that's you know that's what brewers also look at. You know, they, yeah, that's what I want to do, but it costs me that much money. I'm, am I going to get out of it? Right. So, it's always a challenge. And so now we've got yeah. variations on field to field. We have variations on the picking window from the front of the harvest to the back of the harvest. Mm-hmm. We have variations within the bed itself. Um, yeah. How do you keep track of all of that stuff? Um, as a brewer, just go and select your hops. Yeah. That's what I would say. Just go out and, and, and select and really connect with your growers. Right. Have a relationship with them because really they know. They know what the what the right field is, and, yeah. and if you know them, they will tell you. It's terroir, you know. Sure, it's, sure. That's what it is. It's the same as grapes. It's the same as vegetables or right. any kind of other, you know, basically commodity. They know farmers really know what what where the best corner is. Right. Um, but yeah, you know, and then they pick them and they go in this big, you know, blending sure, before sure. they palletize them. I mean, okay, here's six thousand pounds that we blend together yeah. to get palletized. You know, and it's got lost in you know. That's what wineries do so well. We got this this little block, and we're gonna press it just by itself, and it go into two barrels, and that's yeah. that's what we're gonna sell because that's the premium, and then the rest is whatever it is. It's scale, you know, yeah. and uh, you know this. Yeah. I I don't think there's a lot we can do about it um, unless you really really connect with your grower and say okay. That's what we select. That's what we want, and and really unless know you what go, you want. Unless you all are willing to fund uh, new hops processing, smaller uh, uh, facilities to yeah. to, harv- uh, to process just those blocks that uh, you know from the right fields just for you, right? Yeah, I think we're all going a little miniature here, right? Yeah. Because everybody, all consumers want they want that you know the the beer that you can get the small batch. Right. Uh, for us as a brewer, we as a brewer we want the really that small amount of hops and. Yeah, I think it goes all over the place, right? So what's yeah. the perfect Amarillo for you? What's the, what, what Amarillo makes the perfect Tank 7? I think we want more fruitiness in it. Yeah. I think initially we, we, we started with Amarillo because we like the earthiness in it, but mm-hmm. I just like, really like the grapefruit in it. I mm. think that just pushes it and, and makes it more interesting. That plays well, I think, with the fruitiness from the, and the esters from the yeast and then also with the, with the phenols from the yeast. But in the end, I think... You know, when I when I talk about Belgian beer, um, it's always yeast. It come it it's it's about yeast. You know, mm-hmm. uh, a Belgian brewer will talk about yeast, and then they probably will talk about the malt, and then we'll talk about the water, and then oh, when you have time, we'll talk about hops. Yeah. And when you talk about an American brewer, we're going to talk hops. <laughs> you know, and sure, then we'll talk sure. about the water, and then we'll talk about the the malt, and then yeast. Oh, we just get that from a yeast vendor, right? You yeah. know, it's it's so interesting the the how how different cultures or different brewers look at the different uh, the importance of uh, of the different ingredients for beer. Yeah. And yet, you just told me that the yeast came from a sample of your pocket. Uh. Well, you know that's what I say. I got. I mean, I knew exactly what I wanted, and yeah. and, uh, and 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 uh, and we used it. And it's interesting because I I was talking to somebody about it, and uh, he basically said that that yeast, that Abbey yeast that we use, is is considered very very. Um, how do you say it? Uh, I mean, it doesn't really stand out. It's not really phenolic. It's not yeah. fruity. It's like a very well balanced yeast. But for us, it come to me. It comes out as uh, pretty fruit and very phenolic. If I recall, yeah. I think we had a Belgian high gravity yeast. 
general term for this saison that uh, we were drinking. Well, here. yeah, I told you too. Yeah, don't use a saison yeast. There yeah. you go. Now you know. Yeah. That was a high gravity yeah. yeast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's just uh, it's just what I like. And and we do. Did I spoil anything by saying that? Oh no, no, not at all. Um, I, if you, you still remember the number, then yeah, you can you can tell them. I don't know I, because I can't remember. Uh, if you came to the brewers retreat, you'd have uh, all of that information. You know. <laughs> there you go. Got to pay to play, right? There you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we now we use a lot of saison du yeah. yeast, uh, hmm. but we use it mainly in mixed cultures because it really works well in that. It just yeah. dries out very good. It plays well with with the different um, microorganisms that we use, yeah. um, and, and I like it. But I mean, if if if, if I have to choose, I'd probably my favorite yeast or Abbey yeast and Trappist, Trappist yeast yeah. from Belgium. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about water and a little bit about malt since uh, you brought it up. Yeah. Um, you know, water and water treatment isn't something that a lot of people think about very much when we think about saison. But mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, what do you strive for? Um, well, I have to say that the water in Kansas City is probably one of the worst worst <laughs> waters you can yeah, you can only yeah. imagine you know uh the ph that we have to deal with is in the upper nines so Ooh. yeah okay and, and here i am in colorado with the perfect water right um so we i've we've done we've done a lot of thinking about that and in the end we came up with just we just use a acid just to get the um bicarbonates down because that's yeah. really what it is and if you i mean i think if you know your your water chemistry a little bit. I think it's it's easy then to adjust and come up with what uh, um, what you need to be what you need to do. Um, I mean, I like some hardness. So I like some calcium in there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we lately tend to uh, work a lot with chlorides, you know, um, because a lot of the beers that we nowadays. I mean, I'm not talking about saisons, but other beers. Yeah, you know. Um, you know that really that little bit of a sweetness, a little bit of full bodiness, really helps in some of the beers that we make. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you want a, a drier beer, just you know, add a lot of calcium sulfate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and malt. Malt is in. You know, malt is. I think it's. Uh, it's evolving a lot. Malt has been evolving a lot. I think. Um, we we use two two vendors and we kind of select what different um, varieties that we use. Um, and I, I guess I'm turning to be a little bit more old school because I always liked Harrington, which is a variety that is just horrible, horrible for the malter and it's hor- horrible for the brewer because the chaff just, just doesn't stay intact and it just brittles and it, you know, it's everywhere. And then, you know, over the years, all the malts have always been the perfect malt for the bigger brewers, you know, yeah. high enzyme, you know, a lot of DP. Um, while what, what I'm looking for is low DP, I want you know, low soluble protein. I want low total protein. I want to be, I want to mash. Yeah. You know, I want to use that malt. I want to use those enzymes. We use step in step mash for everything that we do. Mm. You know, and every kind of, every beer that we do. It's every beer. All, every beer is stop, step infusion. Really? Yeah. Um, and which is interesting because then you go to the brewer's retreat and then you have the other guys like, okay, strike temperature. Boom. Here we go. One hour. Move on. And I'm, I know, I, I, you know, I didn't even know until I went to the Brewers Street. And uh, I'm like, really? That's what you guys do? That's, that's interesting, you know. And here we are playing with temperatures and different, you know, different times and, and all that. Yeah, we, yeah, every beer has its own mash. And as soon as we start with wheat, we use, you know, we mash in at yeah. 52 degrees Celsius. Sorry. We're metric, um, uh, and then we do step mashes, and we go to sixty-three, and then even a sixty-eight if you want a beer a little drier, and then seventy-three. Yeah. Make sure your conversion is finished. If you want a beer really, really dry, then we keep it low. We might go to like seventy-four, maybe seventy-five, and then start loudering it so you still have enzymatic activity. If you want to have it really, you know, with some body, we go to seventy-eight, stop any enzymatic activity, and then go to louder ton and have the viscosity of the one I mean, louder very well. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot of stuff that we, we play with. And that's what I love about brewing is right. that, you know, you can work with all these enzymes, you know, and just, just, just playing with them. Um, we're just making a brewed IPA, you know, while we're on it. Right? Sure, <laughs> brewed sure. IPA and, and how to make a beer as dry as possible. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, just using that step infusion mash and to the maximum and just getting it as dry as possible. It's, kind of fun to do a little bit of background for folks that may not be familiar uh you brewed a collaboration this week with weldworks brewing yeah in yeah, Greeley, yeah. Colorado, Greeley, colorado yeah and uh you guys chose to 
brew a brute IPA. Yep, yeah. Which is, to be honest, uh, we made one. That was the first one I ever had. I've mm-hmm. never had one before, but I just like the concept. I yeah. like dry beers. I like beers that are very effervescent. It's, well, I like saisons. Sure. And farmhouse ales because they're dry. Oh, I there's a lot, there's a lot in common between mm-hmm. a brute IPA and a saison. Yeah, yeah. Brute IPA is a lot drier than a saison usually, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's what I like. And that's why, you know, a saison is a bit, bit bretonomyces, is nice, effervescent, very dry, yeah. very drinkable beautiful beers tell me a little bit about that i mean you're not necessarily you know you're, you're known more for saison and farmhouse and belgian style beers but uh, you brew a whole lot of ipas as well because everyone who works for large breweries brews a lot of ipas people drink a lot of ipas true and uh, and so you have uh, you know you, you have a, a little bit of experience in that one um from the brute ipa perspective uh i've tasted a few and uh, we've had a few uh you know come through our doors uh, first one I had, I thought was really terrible. Um, you know, that the level of bitterness was so high and, uh, paired with that dryness, it was mouth drying and just an unpleasant way. Um, and the second one I had, you could tell that there was a much more aggressive dry hopping, uh, approach to it. Even and though, even though it wasn't sweet, um, it didn't have a lot of that residual, uh, you know, body and sweetness to it. Um, psychologically, they, the way that they used dry hopping and the kind of fruitiness of that dry hop flavor, it, it suggested sweetness and mm-hmm. uh, created an impression of it uh, that was also softer and uh, um, you know and uh, took an edge off of, of some of that harshness. So, so as, as you're thinking about you know kind of brewed IPA, what, what do you think makes them good, and how do you build some of the balance there when you are under some pretty you know significant constraints and you're taking things like body off the table? Right. Um, so bitterness as low as you can. Yeah. When I when we were brewing this one, it's like okay, just take the minimum hops that you can to not uh, boil over. I mean, that's yeah. I think that probably should be the the norm when you make a brewed up yet. And I mean, really, what do I know? Because I only brewed one. I mean, we probably we were probably talking to the wrong guy. But that's my interpretation. Well, I would say yeah. even the people that invented brewed IPA have only brewed a few at this point. Well, so. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but I think you know we make them. You the bitterness has to be, yeah. I think, less than twenty IBUs. And the IBUs we talked about this earlier. You know, where do the IBUs come from? Well, they come from, of course anything at the brew house but then you do have the dry hopping also that contributes to the to the bitterness so yeah. so keep it as low as possible that's what i think and then for us it was and that's quite that, a, you know i think what you're talking about i mean dry hopping does add bitterness to your yeah, beer exactly, and it, it's yeah. something that your brewing software may not be able to calculate uh, in any kind of accurate way for you because right. at this point there's not a firm science around what the sensory bitterness uh, impact from that kind of dry hopping and so some of it just takes experience to kind of see oh you know with this we perceive it at this even if it doesn't have measurable or calculatable uh, IBUs at this mm. point yeah yeah exactly so so maybe undershoot significantly oh yeah, yeah 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 in in again I'm not a home brewer but I would go on a home brew system just whatever you think you need to avoid over over boil yeah. over that's i think that would be my rule of thumb yeah um and then anything that we added a lot of hops in the in the whirlpool but not really crazy high we just you know we just made sure that you know we get a lot of hop aroma but the majority yeah. is really from dry hopping we dry hopped uh between between seven and eight play-doh we dry hopped between three and four play-doh really mm. during fermentation to get you know, astrification of some of those hop characteristics and get some really nice fruitiness coming out. Um, we did a little test also. We tried to do uh, cold wort hopping, just so on the way from the brew house to our uh, to our fermentation tank, mm-hmm. we we failed miserably. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. So every time you try something new, you learn so much. Sure, uh, sure. But I think that's a, I mean that's a, something that I've seen other breweries do too, yeah. and I really like that. It's a, it brings a new new dimension to using hops and, and creating some really nice fruity hop characteristics. So that's one thing that if you can, you know, with uh, what do you call it, a randle or whatever you do, right. you know, it's even with or a randle as a homebrew, yeah. there you go, yeah. Try it and, hmm. and see, that's that's the beauty of being a homebrewer, right? Just try it and put, right. put a randle on there and just fill it up with hops and put your cold wort through it and see what happens, you know? Cold wort, not hot wort. Cold. Okay. Cold. So you do. You have minimum isomerization. Gotcha. You know, just just all about you know extracting flavors. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm again. That's that's what I think. Talk to me know. a little bit. Well, one of the keys on brewed IPA is uh, using enzymes to uh, facilitate 
the fermentation and to really uh, you know help that yeast dry out that beer uh, much past the normal threshold you right. know, for for those yeasts. Tell me a little bit about what you found uh, in using uh, using enzymes. So we were we tried it. We've um, we've tried using that enzyme a couple of times with different beers also, and we we've only so far have worked with it in the mash tun. And in the mash tun, it's somewhat limited what it can yeah. do. So the one that we made just ended up just just below one plato, which is kind of high for the brewed IPA. Mm. Um, but the one that uh, I just worked with Neil on, he's going to add it to the fermentation tank. So mm. it's going to be. I mean, make sure if you do that, make sure that you measure and you should be at zero or below zero um, for your extract. Um, <clears throat> so make sure that when, um, by, when, by the time you put it in a bottle, there's no residual extract because that yeah. enzyme will keep going. Um, well, it, <laughs> yeah. it, just, it just doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the recommendation from the vendor is if you use in fermentation, you need to flash pasteurize your beer. Yeah. That's, that's the recommendation. So you kill off that enzyme, um, which I wouldn't recommend for home brewing. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so I think on a homebrew scale, I would use it in the mash just to be sure. Yeah. Uh, another option to do is when you fill your kettle and you put, don't put the heat on, that's that works better than in the mash. Hmm. So when you start loudering and go into your kettle, yeah, put the enzyme in, let it work, do its thing for you know as you're filling and maybe a little longer than what you normally would. Mm-hmm. Let it sit for an hour and then it'll make it nice and dry also. And then you just hmm. boil it and denature the enzyme. Neat. Yeah. I learned it. I'm learning this the hard way too. So, <laughs> you know, it's a, but that's a funny thing. I mean, you're an accomplished brewer and uh, brewmaster who's been, uh, you, you know, I guess you're what, 19 years now with Boulevard, and uh, and you're still learning something. I think that's the beauty of this industry, isn't it? It's a it's a good day when you learn something. That's that's my motto. You know, every every day is a good day as long as I learn something. It's also, I think. Uh, an interesting one to watch how you work with younger, smaller brewers, and uh, and there's a give and take there where uh, you can pick up some uh, ideas and techniques, and uh, at the same time also share your experience and help them get better at what they do. Uh, you know how important that is that for you within your uh, your brewing practice. I think I think that's very I think that's very very important. You know I like to share knowledge, and you know uh, it's interesting to go to. I mean some of these. Uh, festivals and um we had boulevardia last week and we right. had a lot of these you know very new brewers also and it's it's just fun to talk to these guys because you know their their mindset is totally sometimes totally different than my mindset is on what they do and i like to learn but i like to give back you know it's i think it's try to make it a win-win situation for both parties you know uh and you can only you can only get information if you share information um i think that's very important yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think a lot of folks out there don't, you know, that you look at collaborations and they, you know, most consumers think about them in marketing terms like, oh, two great breweries that I love. And now they're brewing together and that's really cool. Um, you know, but there is that other effect of those collaborations that you brew and that that's a primary learning channel for a lot of commercial brewers today to, uh, um, to really get in and, and roll up your sleeves and learn from the brewers that you're brewing with. And, uh, you know, and uh, it's, it's fascinating to see how that learning mode is something that happens in brewing that just doesn't really happen in other industries. Because to some degree, I mean, you're brewing beer together with folks that, you know, in a, in a capitalist sense, you're competing against. Um, right. And you're yeah. sharing ideas on how to make things better. Um, culturally speaking, though, that's the thing that has made craft beer grow to the degree that it has. That uh, yeah. you know, those of us who lived through the '90s, craft the late '90s craft beer bust, uh, saw what that kind of um, challenge in quality did to the entire sector. And craft beer's comeback, to a large degree, was a result of brewers banding together and saying, "We want to help everybody make better beer." Because if craft beer in general gets perceived better by consumers in the marketplace, then more people are going to buy it. And now, you know, we've gone, we've, we've watched craft beer now, now economically, it's 20 times what it was, you know, yeah. uh, back at that point. There's a little yeah. train here in the background, but we'll, we yeah, can talk yeah, we'll, through it. <laughs> we'll work through it. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think at a high level in most breweries, you know, I think there's the idea that at one point this this bubble's gonna burst, yeah. you know, and and I think some people think that is the quality is gonna burst it. But you know, I walk around and I go to a lot of different breweries. 
not as much as I would like, but I go to a lot of different breweries, sure. and I'm just astonished by the quality. It is, I, I really think there's really high quality beer in, in almost every brewery that I go to. Yeah. You know, uh, there's, I mean, there's always the, the one sure. that opens up that, hey, I made great beer and my friends liked it, so I'm going to open up a brewery. But uh, people that really have their heart in it, they make really good beer. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah. In the end, how it's going to turn out, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, I sure. think distribution is a big issue. Um, you know, but we'll see how it goes. But I have to say about, about, yeah. about collaborations, you know, I, I'm always honored to work with some of these guys. Yeah. It's uh, I've been around for a long time. Boulevard will be 30 years next year. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's difficult to not become a stale brewery. And, uh, and it's something that we work on every day. It's and, and you have to work on that every day. It's uh, you know it's it's easy for as a consumer. It's easy to go to the new kid on the block and he's making these. I don't know. You know, we, I mean, you know what they're making, and uh, and and you're not making these kinds of beers. And it's easy to go like, whoa, look at this new. I mean, it's new. It's shiny. Whoa, let's go. And and it's hard, you know, as a brewery that's been around for a while, not to become stale. And 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 you have to reinvent yourself. You have to come innovate yourself and you have to come up with new things over and over and over um i think if you but have somebody you do that i mean there are you know for a brand for a company the size of boulevard that's distributed in as many states as you are there are a whole slew of different challenges that you have to face compared to that you know new small guy that's brewing 500 to a thousand barrels and selling them all out of his tap room i mean that guy can sell a beer that uh you know that may fall off in a month but as long you know as consumers see the drink fresh and mm-hmm. don't age it and you know they, i mean and that's their out and they can say oh well you know you you let it go six weeks it's not good after six weeks and um you know you send beer out all over the country and that beer has to sit on a shelf and has to deal with a whole myriad of different uh, storage ways and means from both from distributors as well as retailers and you never know if it's going to be stacked in pallets out warm stored in the middle of a store or if it's going to be you know nicely uh, cold stored all uh, you know within that that retailer's cold box um you know but your your consumer doesn't know i mean your consumer doesn't know if they left it on a pallet out in you know the back on the uh, loading dock for a day and it got up to 80 degrees and before they put it in the cooler i mean your consumer just knows it says boulevard on the label and they want it to taste good yeah um you know exactly and- <laughs> yeah yeah no you're, you're you're this i mean it's a it's a sore point and yeah. and and i like you know what some of these the, the tap rooms do you know uh, own what do you call it again uh, their own uh, own premise yeah. yeah where the brewery really just controls everything it's a beautiful thing yeah it's beautiful yeah. it's what beer was centuries sure, ago sure. You know? and now we're trying to you know distribute to the whole country and and you're facing with a lot more challenges you're absolutely right i mean if if i look at some of these breweries that that do fantastic things and they just only serve it here on their own premise or they may have some you know, really small local distribution. They just put out beer and it doesn't really matter. You know, for us, if we put out, put something new out, it's a whole machine that's behind it. You know, we call it not for, for nothing, we call it the bet. And it's a yeah. bet. Yeah. You know, we can't, you know, a smaller brewery can do like, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to make 20 new beers this year. Right. We can't because we have to, I mean, there's a whole financial sure, model sure, behind sure. it. Not let alone the marketing that yeah, has to yeah. go with it, the sales that has to be uh, understand, and and least but not least, we have to get the distributor to buy into the whole program, right? Which is, I mean, it's which is the key. Uh, so you can't just throw up and okay, hey, I got something really new. I'm gonna make a hazy IPA. I mean, you know yeah. what the faces will be like, you know, from the from the wholesaler. So you have to really come up with new things. And I'm, you know, I'm sure if there are smaller brewers listening, they'd be a Crimea River. You know, you can sell hundreds of thousands of barrels of beer per year. I mean, okay, that's a small problem that you have to face. But, yeah. but even you know, even at the level of your business, I mean, that that struggle is real. That that some of that uh, impact of innovation within the industry does have a, a real impact on your bottom line and does affect what you all do. But to that end. I mean, how do you maintain that kind of innovation, and uh, how do you bring a new product out to the market? Uh, what's what's the the process look like behind that? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. Um, we I think we came out with some beers here recently that I probably would have never done if somebody asked me. Um, and I think you know, and right now we have to you have to be innovative to survive. There's yeah. just no other way to do it. And what I do is I try to get everybody on board 
And and sometimes when we look at something new that we're going to do and we look at, okay, what market is this going to, who's the consumer for this, you know, I, I really, I rely heavily on, on the people that are on my team and they know that. And I, you know, I, I, I try to get the right people in and then right, get the right people in and then make sure that they're really, that they know that it's part of their, of their, of their job is innovative. And all our brewers are that way. And I mean, we have some brewers that are less probably, I mean, they like, okay, I'm here. They're not there to do a job. They're yeah. there because they really want to work at Boulevard and they really love their job. And you have other brewers that are, are there also, but I mean, they're just more into what's innovative and they bring a lot to the table. And Ryan McNeef runs our barrel program and he's he just comes up with cool, cool ideas. Some of our regular brewers, I mean, they come up with cool ideas. We actually made a beer here recently that um, all the women in the brewery got together and they made a beer and uh, they came to me and said like hey we want to make a beer is that okay I was like, of course it's okay please do and it's a beer that we put on tap in our in our beer hall and it was a salted caramel stout um there was a line out the door for that beer you know it was the, our people in the beer hall do a great job they market it yeah. really cool they i mean on, on social media they just you know, they know what they do and they you know they give a part of the of the income to a good cause and it was it was just great to see you know a group of of that attended brewer and their uh, half of the women were basically uh, have office jobs and they were really into it to make yeah. this beer um huh. and then our our, our girl uh, abby abby i call her a girl but she's a she's a man and uh she runs her sensory program so every time we do something like okay abby you're a millennial. What do you think this needs to be? And she and 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 it's yeah. great to bring people in, you know, young people into this and have their take on things and yeah. just think that okay, this beer needs to be this because you know what? If it's not that way, I'm not gonna drink it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah. So make sure that you understand what certain groups need and and make sure that you you know basically check all those boxes. What are you? I routinely see this among commercial brewers, but uh, what beer nerds and beer, you know, beer geeks and those that are really into the market uh, may assume a brewery sells the most of is often not the beer that a brewery sells the most of. True. Um, you know, there's an impression that, uh, yeah, uh, you know, that the brewery, because they have a reputation for it or because that's the beer that appeals, you know, to a specific uh, subset of severe, heavily, heavy enthusiasts. Um, you know that that is somehow the most important beer in a beer's li- in, a, in a brewery's lineup, um, but most of the time, breweries as they start making beer find unexpected results. That these beers that uh, seem to take off with customers, and I was I was told by a brewer, and I'll keep that anonymous, that, that a certain brewery that had opened up a new large production facility on the East Coast, um, who's known for their IPAs. Uh, uh, instead, uh, the highest, the top selling beer in, in their tap room on the east coast uh, you know was a, a fruited wheat beer or uh, you know something along those lines uh, even though you know again this brand is just renowned for their ipas and and so unexpectedly uh what is a beer that sells really well for boulevard whether it's even if it's a taproom only beer that people wouldn't expect that uh you know that surprised maybe even you as you all were thinking about do, you know do we make this beer and and uh, will it sell yeah i i mean for us it's unfiltered wheat beer yeah, is still our number one brand, and it mm. was for the longest time. It was, I mean, it was a huge part of our our whole business. Yeah, um, I mean, because we were in the Midwest, and Boulevard was kind of the brewery, and still is one of the biggest breweries in the Midwest. Yeah, but we were, um, I mean, we were local because there was just not enough, not a lot of breweries around Kansas City. Now there's a lot of them popping up. And, yeah. Um, so it, I mean, it's a different different field right now. But yeah, Unfiltered Weed Beer is still our number one brand. Uh, when it comes to Putting new beers out, um, you know, especially with, to our our tap room, to our beer hall. Yeah. Uh, I think just really anything new, uh, and for us, it's IPAs. I don't think Boulevard is known for IPAs. Yeah, uh, I think that's probably you know the biggest growing and the largest category is IPAs, and we really don't play in that field. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that's probably something that we probably should look at. I think, <laughs> as we're talking here. Yeah. But yeah, if we put IPAs out, they go. If we put, yeah. and, and we do, you know, uh, pastry stouts and barrel stouts sure, and all that, sure. and they really, really do well. You know, it's it's 
probably 95 degrees right now in Kansas City, and I'm, <laughs> I can assure you there's a, a whole bunch of people drinking heavy 10% plus stouts right now. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, that's what, uh, you know, uh, consumers want. It's amazing, isn't it? The fruit beers, the grow of fruit beers in any kind of category that you think about it, fruited IPAs to all the way wheat beer, uh, fruit wheat beers and anything in between, sour sour fruit yeah. beers. If you think about it and you say, okay, I'm just going to look at just fruit beers, it's big, it's huge, and it's what people want. It's I think you know, and yeah. they're not easy to make. I think they're to me they're they're really difficult to make, and especially you know, again what we talk about if you distribute throughout the country and yeah. make sure that those beers really stay stable and really nice and fruity. Uh, you know, we came out with a fruit beer last year, and it's it's going really really well. Um, what beer is that? Jam Band. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's really it's just it's. Yeah, it's a it's a yeah. blueberry and and raspberry and and two different kinds of cherries and um, very easy drinking, nice and tart, very refreshing. You know, it's um, we had it on our website. Will you ever make a fruit beer? And the answer was <laughs> nope. Well, we had to take that off. Uh, but uh, um, it, it's that's it, okay. If Monkish can get away with uh, no MSG, no IPAs, you guys can get away with uh, <laughs> you know we'll never make a fruit beer. You know, yeah, you yeah, yeah, pass for that one. There, okay, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, yeah, there's just an audience for that. Yeah. I think. Um, what do you think's driving that? And you know, I look at it again from from that beer perspective of of the last twenty years. I mean, there was a point in the two thousands, nineties, and two thousands where. You know, that, that fruited wheat beer was something that the true beer lovers, you know, they kind of looked down upon it. They looked at it as, uh, you know, that beer that the brewery had to make to appeal to drinkers that didn't have the refined palates of those beer nerds. And now uh, we're seeing exactly the opposite, where uh, the, the beer nerds themselves are lining up in droves for those fruited sour beers, those fruited IPAs, the milkshake IPAs with puree. The, I mean, you name it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sour IPAs with fruit puree added. I mean, you know, it's it's getting a little absurd, you know, mm-hmm. you know some might argue, yeah. uh, the level of fruit that's yeah. going on in, in beer today. And, uh, uh, you know, when how did this happen? What do you think it is that's making uh, beer consumers so attracted? I think it has a little bit to do with, people that come to drinking age also um hmm. you know if you kind of look at the data and you know we know we all know that beer consumption goes down and that cocktails go up wine goes up yeah so i mean if you look at that what's in cocktails and what's in in wine it's fruit so there is definitely a trend towards fruit and we as brewers whether we think about this or not we know that that's that's really what it grows i think a lot of it has to do with how People grow up, you know, if you grow up and you drink soda, you know, you're yeah. used to fruit, you're used to to sugar, you're used to sweetness. So that's basically, you're just used to it. Yeah. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I'm not a, I'm, you know, I, I'm not a researcher on that field, but I think it has something to do with it. And, you know, I think it's just sometimes fruited beers, they're just nice, I think. Mm-hmm. I, I like them. I, I, I like a nice sour fruited beer. I think it just creates a different dimension to these beers, you know. Sometimes you have a fruited, just a sour beer, and I think, okay, it's great, but you know what? Wish there was some fruit in this because it makes so much better, and it just it just pushes the envelope too. You know, I um, I here recently I had like a whole set of different sour beers uh, with different fruits in them, and I'm like it's just like wow, this is just makes it so much more interesting. Yeah. But but why? What is it about that that makes it that interesting? Is there something about, or are there specific fruits that you think add that kind of complementary flavor that uh, uh, supports a beer that you know that already has a base in acidity i mean i think there is some commonality there because you're talking about acid beer and so much fruit does have significant acid components in it yeah um you know there is almost a natural kind of complementary uh uh, you know flavor profile between those things yeah um you know is that it or or is there some other element you know that you think that the fruit adds to that beer to help take it to some not another place yeah i I don't know um yeah i mean i i I like passion fruit Personally, I think passion fruit and sour beers are really nice. Passion of course, fruit you have a thing for phenols, right? Yeah, I do. I do. Here you go. <laughs> Done. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, besides yeah. just the traditional, the the raspberry wheats that right. everybody made in the '90s. Now I think we all grew up about past that, and we make you know even wheat beers that are just a little bit more interesting. Maybe. I, and, and I'm just guessing here, but maybe it has something to do that, you know, consumers, as consumers, we want something new. What's the newest thing? Yeah. So 
I mean, there's a whole slew of fruits that we can work with, and that way we can, you know, make a new beer, uh, you know, based on a, an existing beer or a new beer, and just make sure that we can extend what we do. Yeah. Um, and then just a blend of different fruits, uh, not just making just focus on one. That again, in the '90s, raspberry was it. Now we can do, you know, make put different beers in it, right. and just make all these different levels of flavors. Um, there's nothing that I like more about smelling a, a beer and say okay whoa that's you know it's that fruit and then you taste it and it's like whoa this there's a different fruit and you just make it in layers and layers and layers just keep discovering what's in the glass i think that's amazing you know as we know the trends in, in beer come and go you know they they uh, there's a yin and a yang and a cycle uh you know that things push through um you know and we're in a pretty creative cycle right now but if we look at at history History tells us that there will probably be some return to, uh, you know, a focus on classic uh, at some point in the next 20 years. Um, how concerned are you with that? You know, if you look at brands on the spirits side or even on the wine side, uh, they spin up new brands. You know, and then so if you want to add cinnamon to your, your whiskey, you know, you, you launch Fireball. And mm-hmm. uh, does that affect the, the parent brand? No, it's owned by the same company, but they, they spin up a new brand for this kind of thing. Within the beer world, we don't do that. You know, that, uh, you know, you, you generally speaking, you know, all of the beer that you make comes out of that brewery brand. And so if you start making, you know, beers that seem to be a, you know, a departure from, you know, the core idea of that, of that beer brand, um, you know, does it, it can change consumer perception? Um, you know, how, how much at, at some level do you get concerned that this let's, you know, try everything and make everything might ultimately over the long run erode some of that kind of classic and, uh, uh brand power. Yeah. Oh man, I can, I can answer a lot to that, but, uh, I mean, I, I, two things. One, I think, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think the life cycle of a brand is really short. I think we all know that. It's really, really difficult to make brands nowadays. Yeah. I think for us, Tank 7 was probably one of the last biggest brands that we built. Um, making new brands right now is extremely difficult. And then you have to think, if I make a brand, what's the life cycle? How long is it going to last? Yeah. And it's really, really short. But on the other hand, what I see, and I think you're absolutely right, if I go to a brewery, they they almost always have a lager on tap or a pilsner on tap because... You know, they're just classic. They're you get tired of drinking. You know, a lot of these over the top beers. Sure, sure. And uh, and I just love them. And I see, you know, I see these. We we talk about this probably over the last five years that pilsners are coming back. I don't know if they're coming back, but I know one thing that we we go get more and more creative and the more and more we create it off, the more I hear from people like, are you ever going to make a beer again? You know, <laughs> and, then, and then we come up with something very simple, very easy drinking. You know, we made a beer, you know, Mexican lager, like a lot of yeah. breweries have done here recently. It's just so thirst quenching, so nice yeah. when it's hot outside and just, you know, and there's just beautiful beers. And um, that probably was for us, probably one of the you know, most successful things that we've done here recently. Um, on top of some other things, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was one of them. Yeah, that was the vamos. Uh, the vamos. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it always helps when you get can get it tied in with the royals. You know, right, right. that always helps. Um, but they gotta get their winning mode up a little bit. That would help too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think as a brewer, you just want to have you know yeah. something really, really nice and drinkable too. Yeah. Yeah, I always wonder about this. Yeah, you know, you th- I think about. You know, this in musical terms and you know right now in, in 2018 um, there's not really a predominant musical style you know if you look back at past decades we've almost achieved this place where all of the things are moving together in small ways in parallel now and so all of these musical trends from EDM to alt country to you know pop music hip-hop and everything else everything is just coexisting and there's not one big broad trend that's dominating all of the rest and i'm wondering you know if that becomes that future of beer that uh, it's not that pilsner is going to take over and replace all the other beers that we drink but it becomes this other channel among all of these channels that continue to move forward um in smaller ways you know and that is a change for the industry because the big brand and the kind of tentpole brands that have held things up 
um, start to, to wither away a little bit. And I mean, we see that across the beer industry, that those big beers the breweries counted on, um, you know, they're the ones that are declining in volume more than anything else. And, you know, whether it's, uh, we don't need to name names, but yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, but, but those big brands, you know, that, that, um, you know, uh, but at the same time, those breweries don't necessarily need to, in aggregate, lose vo- overall volume because if you can make it up uh, with with a larger number of different and new things, then all of those find their own niche consumer and uh, and kind of move forward together. It's a different way. I mean, it takes a it's a lot more difficult to mm-hmm. produce the same amount of beer and do it that way um, than to sell one brand in a large way across uh, you know a large swath of people. But yeah. uh, but it does seem like that may be the future that we're in store for yeah i i agree i agree it's not we can't survive on one brand anymore we have to make all you know different brands and you know everybody talks about local and just you know try to make sure that you can you cover almost everything for your local market and you know and sustain that way i i I think you're onto something yeah so what's next what's next for you all and what's exciting uh, and on your radar and uh is there anything that's keeping you up at night these days well, yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> um, I think um, from just from a supplier point, I think the hop industry, yeah. you know, that, that makes me a little nervous, you know, that, uh, um, and I talked to some, a lot of the growers also, you know, please don't put new, invest that much in it because it yeah. is, I think we were on a high ride and that was a couple of years ago and they did and I think now it's like, you think you know, overproduction, overproduction and uh, hop stocks yeah. are uh, yeah. at a dangerous place right now. Yeah, yeah okay. that makes me nervous. Um, just the innovation, the speed of innovation is really is really difficult. Um, you know, I think we came out with between a Mexican lager, uh, you know, which I like making, you know, um, um, and then, you know, fruit beer and, and some other things. And then, you know, the speed that we innovate, uh, that makes, it, makes me a little nervous. Um, the capacity that's out there. Yeah. Just the amount of, of investment that breweries have done over the couple of years and still do today uh, makes me a little nervous. And if somebody asks me, like, hey, should I in- invest? It's like, no, probably not, because you know what? There's capacity out there. Somebody else can help you grow what you want to be, want to go to, and then yeah. you know, bring that capacity in. If, when For you people really that know, don't understand that, I'm, you know, if we look at the stats and the Brewers Association tracks this, um, there is the ability to produce about 40% more beer than uh, right now. Uh, in terms of having tank space and uh, you know the brewery capacity to produce it mm-hmm. uh, that, that's being unused and uh, you know breweries that that means the breweries have spent capital building out this you know infrastructure to to make more beer than they are and and there's that's a big gap that gap has grown from in the 20s a couple of years ago 20 percent range mm-hmm. now to i think close to 40 yeah. Um, yeah and that's that's a lot of capital that's being unused out there yeah and and you know i think we played into that uh, a little bit so we we just put in a can line. It's been operating for the last two months, but we've had canned beer for beer and cans for the last three years, and we've uh, we've heavily relied on you know, some of our partners, like guys at Firestone Walker, have been making beer, uh, pr- producing beers for us, and yeah. and put in cans for us. And uh, of course, if you have Firestone Walker making beer for you, you can't <laughs> complain. Um, and some other breweries have helped us out too yeah. over the years. And then you create that you know you create this business, and then you can go back and say, okay, here's where it is. If we bring it in house and we do really this investment to put a can line in, and then what you know on top of that we can do more because we can do smaller batches, other brands that we have right. and all that. And uh, I mean that's how we looked at it. And I think, um, I mean if, if if I was a brewery that's grown really fast and it's like okay, I need to do that much of investment to keep going, versus going out and look at breweries that have extra capacity and say hey can you help me out. Uh, or a contract brewer for that matter, and say, hey, help me out for a couple of years until I can really grow this business and then look at it and say, okay, what's my ROI for this investment? And then just invest. I mean, I think it's just a smart way to do it. It's not what we want to do as craft brewers. Sure, sure. Uh, and uh, if you, you talk, want to control all yeah, the elements a- of everything. Absolutely. And, and it's a relief to bring everything back to the brewery. I can sure. tell you that. Uh, because talking about what keeps me up at night, that kept me up at night too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, it's just, it's just. I think from a business point, I think it's smart. It's and it's really having that debt overhanging for a major capital investment like that. Uh, I mean, that's the thing that's starting to put breweries out of business. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, making a bet, their own bet, and taking out debt to uh, you know grow to fulfill that, and then not seeing that growth materialize, leaving that gap, and not having the funds to to pay that note. 
I mean, that's a way to, to give your bank or give your brewery back to a bank. Yeah. Um, yep. you know, and, and I imagine that's a whole lot more fearful than something like having another high quality brewer making a little bit of beer that you sell under your brand. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think they're out there. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're out there. And you know, if, if you're successful as a brewer, um, it's, it's not easy, but I mean, and then you have other brewers that have extra capacity. I mean, you know what you want. Right. If you know what you want, if you know what's important for your brand, if you know what's important for your beer, and you know exactly, you really help that brewer make your beer like you want it, it's challenging, and it will not be perfectly your beer. I can guarantee you that, because every brewery has its own, own flavor and its own taste. It, But try to make it as close as possible that you can live with, and then... You know, and yeah. do it that way. I think it's a smart business way to do it. Yeah. Well, Stephen, it's uh, it's about time for us to go. All right. So cool. uh, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us uh, here on the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. It's been a wonderful conversation, as all of ours always are. Yeah, great. And, uh, yeah. yeah, thank you for joining me. Yeah, we didn't talk a lot technical about brewing, but oh well. Maybe next time. Uh, I think there's some some nuggets in there. There you go. Somewhere, right. somewhere. Well, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. If you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, we certainly encourage you to subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and of course, subscribe to the podcast on uh, whatever uh, platform that you use to listen to these. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.